Our Heavenly Father, as we look into your word this morning, we are so thankful for your spirit working through a man named Matthew to deliver us a gospel that tells us about our great Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Father, I just pray that as we look at the call of Matthew this morning, that we would see that there's no one that's too far from your grace and your mercy and your love. And help us to have compassion and eyes to see those around us who are in need of a Savior, and they can see Christ's love through us. And we pray this in your holy name. Amen. So here we come to, really, Gunnar and I were talking about this passage, and it, it is an amazing passage in the book of Matthew. Matthew, as Gunnar has already pointed out, is really the gospel to the Jews. It's trying to convince Jewish people in their culture that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And it's very countercultural to what they have come to realize and their interpretations of the Jewish law and the, Jew, and the Old Testament. And so what's happened is, as Gunnar pointed out several weeks ago, the, 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 the story pit, it kind of picks up in chapter 4 with, with Jesus doing this teaching, and then we go from 5 to 7, which is the Sermon on the Mount. Well, now we've come away apart from the Sermon on the Mount, and what we've seen is as we finished up, he's finished up the Sermon on the Mount, he came down the mountain, and we spent the last chapter seeing Christ's power over disease, over demons, over nature, and finally last week, all of that ultimately led up to his power to forgive sins. Because ultimately, if you are God, if he is, as he claims that he is God, if he does not have the power to forgive sin, our basic problem, he's not God. And so we see last week that he had the power to forgive sin, and all those other miracles were intended to prove his deity and his power to forgive those sins. Matthew immediately moves from proving Christ's power to forgive sin, and it's fascinating that, that, that he moves on from there to show that that power was proved in his own life by Christ forgiving one who in Jewish society is probably seen as the greatest sinner there was. So how does this start off? It says that Jesus went on from there. He saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he got up and followed him. Now, this short verse, there's a lot there. Because as you read this, you have to ask yourself, first of all, who is this man named Matthew? Up to this point, we haven't really talked a lot about the author of this book. I know, I know when Gunnar started the book, he kind of did. But, but we haven't really been introduced before to the actual writer of the book of Matthew. Um, it's interesting if you read in, Ma in Mark and in Luke, you'll see that he also has the name Levi. Um, and in the book of Matthew, Matthew always, always calls himself Matthew. But in, in Mark and, and Luke, he is called Levi on a couple of occasions. And, and one of them is at his calling. And most likely, there's a lot of, there's a lot of arguments about why you know, the two names. And one could have been a Christian name. One could have been a Jewish name. That, there's not a lot of proof for all of that. But, but what we do know is that that was a, very com a pretty common occurrence. You have the illustration of Cephas. Simon, who we also know as Peter. So it, it's a pretty common occurrence at that time for them to take on two names. One of them could have been a Roman name. One of them could have been a Jewish name. We just don't know 100% for sure. But, but it's obvious that when you see the name Levi, speaking of the same person, this man named Matthew. So that's who he was. But what did he do? Because this is the most important aspect of this passage. 
Matthew was one who was a tax collector. Now, when we think of tax collectors, none of us, you know, really like dealing with the IRS. I mean, I don't know anybody. Okay, well, there's a few. Is Debbie here for the first service? Um, no. Uh, so, so there's a few people in the church whose livelihood depends on dealing with the IRS. And so, you know, maybe for them, it's not quite as scary of a thing to deal with the IRS. But for most of us, if you get a call tomorrow from, from the IRS and they say, guess what? You get to get audited. You know, that's not going to be a very fun experience for most of us. You know, you got to start digging up paper. It's, it's just not going to be fun. So even today, like, we don't really care to deal with tax collectors. But at the same time, if you had a friend who worked for the IRS and you were genuinely friends, you'd probably still get along with them and you'd like him, even if you might not want to deal with them on a professional level. So there wouldn't be an animosity there. But at that time, a tax collector was really looked on differently. A tax collector was seen as the lowest of low scum that you could get. Now, Gunnar pointed out that last week, or actually, I guess I was listening to a sermon from three weeks ago, but uh, he pointed out that when he, in, the, in the healings of, the, of Peter's mother-in-law, of the centurion's uh, servant, uh, and then of the other healing, that all of them were people who would not have been allowed in the temple. They were all kind of the out, outcast of society, kind of outskirts of Jewish society. Um, and here, he is the lowest of low in Jewish society. As a matter of fact, what would happen is, because these were Jews who would become these tax collectors, even though they worked directly for the Roman government, they were looked on as, oh, well, you're not even, you can, we, you can come into the outskirts of the temple, but we're probably going to shun you and we're never going to look at you. And, and, and that's why when you read the parable of the tax collector, the publican is another term for them if you're reading the old King James. Um, a publican and, and then the Pharisee in the temple, they were so far apart from each other because one of them could not enter the temple and that was the tax collector. And so, Here's Levi, he's a Matthew, he's a tax collector. Now, to top it off, there were two types of tax collectors. One was a, a, a what was called a, um, a gabi. The gabi were, were like your junior tax collectors. They were the entry-level folks. They were, for those of you who know government levels, they were like a GS6. And um, so they were like entry-level, GS4, GS5, you know, low-level employees. And there wasn't a whole lot of way for them to scam the system and, and make a ton of money off the top because they were doing things like they would take your poll tax, they would take your, uh, they would do your, um, your property tax, your income tax, things that were pretty set in stone about what you owed. There was still a little wiggle room, and so they would, they would skim off the top. I mean, that was what they were mainly known for is they were... They were scammers, and they would take whatever they could get over the top what the Roman government charged. So that was the Gabi. Well, Matthew, though, it was, it's pretty clear from what, how he was found here that Matthew was not one of those lower-level tax collectors. He was what was called a, a mokes. And I don't even know if I'm saying that right. But a mokes is like the high-level tax collector. And they even were divided into two groups. So the greater Mokes and the lesser Mokes. And Matthew was probably a lesser one. And they would basically, they would collect your big taxes. These were people who, just like Matthew was found, sitting at a port harbor of entry so they could tax goods and services coming into the country. They could tax the fishermen as they pulled up with their boats full of fish. And they could look and say, 
yeah, that looks like 100 pounds of fish. We're going to charge you $500 because that just feels like the right amount. And it was very nebulous and gray as to what they were actually allowed to charge. And in fact, the Roman government had given them carte blanche to basically kind of even set the rates and then, and then they sent theirs directly to the Roman government. It didn't go through any lesser. They reported directly to the central Roman government for their taxes. So you can imagine that these guys were the most hated. They would literally park their, their, their places of business right at the ports of entry, right on the roads, so they could tax people as they were taking their goods and services to market. And so they were very hated. Um, it, it seems clear here that Matthew was one who sat at a customs house, taxing goods and stuff as they would come into this port of entry. Remember where Jesus is at this point. He's in Capernaum. Capernaum is on, if you're on a clock with the, with the Sea of Galilee up here, the, Capernaum is, is over here at about 11 o'clock, and, and, and that's where they're at. It's a port city. So they had a lot of commerce going in and out and in and out. And, and Matthew is one of those that sat there and taxed it as it came in and out of the port. What's fascinating is you never, you, we don't know for sure, but he might have even known Peter and the other disciples because th- they were bringing their boats in and out. They were bringing them in and out with fish and other items. And who knows, but he might have been the one to actually tax those guys as they came in and out. Um, Matthew seems to have been at a custom house near the water. Uh, we, we don't see that directly here. In Mark chapter 2, verse 13 and 14, though, it says, uh, And he, Jesus, went out again by the seashore, and all the people were coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he got up and followed him. And so we see that Matthew is right near the water. So that's how we come to believe he's a customs agent right there. Whatever the case, though, he is literally among the most hated group in the entire Jewish region, if not all of the Roman Empire. And the fascinating thing is that in Luke, it doesn't say this here, but in Luke chapter 5, verse 27, it says this. In Luke 5, 27, in the story of Matthew's call, and we're going to look at this in a minute again, and it says, he said to him, follow me, and it says he left everything behind. Now, what, what's interesting about what happens to Matthew here? Matthew is a man that like him or hate him, the tax collectors were very wealthy. because they, And especially at his level, like I said, he could scam you for almost any amount of money and you had no recourse. So he could take anything he wanted and he could get very wealthy at doing it. He, he had the ability to, at a certain level, if he kept growing, the reason they had greater moquez and lesser moquezes that even sounds right. But the reason they had those was because at the higher levels, you could literally hire people to sit at your booth and collect the money for you. And you would never have to work a day in your life. You just went over there and collected your money and went home and spent it. So he was a man who had a lot going for him in life. Yes, the Jews hated him, but he didn't care. He had money. And yet Luke 5.27 tells us he left everything. Why would he give up all the money, all the power to follow Christ. It was something that he recognized in Christ that none of the religious leaders understood, and it was what we saw last week. He saw the mercy and forgiveness of of Jesus Christ. Something that the religious leaders 
could not offer and did not offer to anyone in their religious stuff. Jesus Christ offered, remember where this started at, was with forgiveness. The fact that when he saw a person, he didn't see their physical needs like the man who they brought to him last week through the roof. He saw a person who was in need of ultimate forgiveness and restoration with God the Father. And when, G- and when Jesus looked at Matthew, he didn't see a man who was hated by society and, and, and was a thief and a robber and, a, and worked for the, the, the anti-God government of Rome. He looked and he saw a man named Matthew who was a sinner in need of a savior. And he simply said, follow me. And without a single word from the text, Matthew gets up and follows Jesus. I love the way that there's a man named Edersheim who wrote a book uh, over a century old now called um, The Life and Times of Jesus. And he puts it this way in The Life and Times of Jesus. He says, he said not a word for his soul was in the speechless surprise of unexpected love and grace. Most tax collectors were treated as absolute outcasts by every other person that was around them. Oh, they were respect. They were they were feared. They were not respected. They were feared, all right, because they had the power of the Roman government and the sword behind them so they could take whatever they wanted. But they were hated. They were despised. Nobody would approach them. Nobody would invite them to their house. Nobody would want to eat with them because they were a horrible person. The message of this story that I want us to see as we continue to look at this today is that there's no sin and there's no sinner that is outside the reach of God's mercy. And it doesn't matter where you find yourself today in society or in your own self or in your family or whatever you've done in the past or wherever you are with God right now, there is nothing that you have done that is too far away from God's mercy and God's grace. And I think that's the overall theme here in this calling of Matthew. And that unfortunately, just like the religious leaders of Jesus' day, Sometimes we tend to write people off who we think are unworthy, who we think are unable to be saved because, well, they're just, they do this and they do this and they're this people. But I want us to remember that there's no one outside the reach of God's mercy. He goes on in verse 10 and he says this, Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. Now, why does he go right into this story? This is the same thing that happens in all three of the of the Gospels: Matthew, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, and and basically, what we find out, we don't see it here. There's some time elapsed between these two. It's not like he just runs in, into this next party. Um, but it is interesting, and we don't see it here. But in Luke five twenty seven, it's very clear that Matthew is actually the one throwing this party. In Luke 5, 27 through 29, this is the story again from Luke's perspective, and this is what it says. After that, he went out, and he noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he left everything behind, and he got up and began to follow him. And Levi gave a big reception for him in his house. And there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with him. Now, so what is going on here? We have um, Matthew, he, he gets up and says, I'm willing to leave all of this and follow Christ. 
And then Matthew's reaction is one of, hey, you know what? I have a lot of friends who need to know Jesus Christ as well. And they just happen to be people who do the same thing I do. And so he gets up and he throws this big party and he invites all of his friends so they can meet Jesus. And Jesus goes there and he's at this party with them at some point in time later. But it's clear that it's Matthew's house. Now, I don't know about you, but what a great reaction to Jesus Christ. He gets saved and he's he's like, you know what? Everybody else needs to know about this guy who just who I just up and left everything to follow. When we really meet Jesus Christ, that's the same reaction that we should have, that we want other people to know about him, that we want other people to know just how great of a God and a Savior that we serve. And so that's what happens. He goes to this party, and then in verse 11, of course, look who shows up. The Pharisees saw this. Now, they weren't at the party, but they saw it. They knew what was going on. And they said to his disciples, Why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? Now, this is the, average, the normal reaction from these guys. Here they are. They're the ones who set the religious law. They're the ones who tell people, this is what's right, this is what's wrong. And to them, it's very clear that if you're cheating people, and if you work for the Roman government, that you obviously are a sinner, and a good, religious, righteous person is never going to associate with you. And so in their minds... you. Anybody doing this is a sinner. And why in the world would this man who claims to be a rabbi, who claims to be a a, a religious person, a, a follower of God, who actually claims to be God in the flesh, why in the world would he lower himself and eat with these sinners? Um, the uh, it, It's interesting here. There's a little sarcasm here because I almost I, you almost want to put quotation marks around your teacher. You can just imagine that... This was probably in a house, Matthew's house. Now, he was fairly wealthy, probably. So it might have been a little bigger house, so they had people. But the Pharisees would not have entered that house with all those people there. So they were probably, like, there was one of the disciples maybe standing outside, and the Pharisees come up to him, and your teacher over there is eating in this house, and I just saw a whole bunch of sinners go in there. Explain that to me there, you good, righteous disciple of Jesus. And that's the kind of that, that's how I picture this is happening. This all the sarcasm flowing out of this. Here's what they didn't understand though. The religious leaders were expecting a Messiah who would crush the sinful, the tax collectors, the people who didn't follow Jewish law, the people who were not as good as they were. They were expecting a Messiah who would crush the sinful and support the righteous. They had little place for one who accepted and transformed the sinner and dismissed the righteous as hypocrites. And that was where they found themselves. Because now Jesus is not just showing himself as a great teacher who redefined the law in a way that showed that they were hypocrites in their following of it. But now he's showing himself as one who, who in calling people to live out their righteousness, also called them to love people who were not righteous who were called to love people in a way that only Christ and only God could love people. And instead of looking down on them and hating them, he loved them, he cared for them, he showed them mercy, and ultimately, back to our word we learned about last week, he showed them forgiveness. They didn't understand, they, and, and it was brought up again in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 19, 
the Pharisees again says that he was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. It's going to be their mantra the whole time, the rest of Jesus's life on earth, that Jesus cannot be a righteous person because he's a friend of sinners. He's a friend of tax collectors, these horrible people. Sinner here actually has a couple connotations. Number one, actual sinners, in that they were immoral, they were they were people who uh, who who obviously had broken the law. They 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 were sinners, just like all of us. Romans three twenty three says all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Um, and and this is kind of the focus of here. Chapter nine starts with Jesus forgiving sins. That's the focus of the passage. So they were sinners. There's another aspect of this word here is that they were sinners in the eyes of the religious. Not necessarily that they were sinners in God's eyes. Remember, the Pharisees had twisted the law to become a very specific set of instructions. And if you did not follow those, if you were not orthodox according to their standard and their belief, you were a sinner. And so they had set themselves up as the judge and jury on what was right and what was wrong. And so to them... Matthew could also be looking at it from those eyes and saying, they're sinners. And it's the same thing that can happen even in our churches, maybe for someone who does know Jesus Christ, but because they don't exactly look the same way that we think they should look, or they don't talk the same way we think they should talk, we can look at them and say, well, they're a sinner. Because we're judging them not by God's standard, and he's the ultimate judge, we're judging them by our standard. And that's what was happening here as well, I believe. Now, why is it significant about the meal? Because I thought about this and I was like, well, he's talking a lot about they were gathered here for this meal. But you have to understand in Jewish custom, the meal is very significant. For us, we get together, you know, we eat food at night and yay, it's good. We like food. Um, Or we go out to a restaurant or something like that. But for them, if you have people over to your house, if you have a party and you invite people, you don't just have people crash your party. You have a group of people, and it means that you're in deep relationship with them. It, is, it, it shows your close identification with the person. And so for like the Pharisee, they would never eat a meal. They would be very careful that whoever they were seen in public eating a meal with, that that person was ceremonially clean, that they were a person that would, could be allowed in the temple, that it was someone that, that would not tarnish their reputation. And so it was a very important thing to sit down and a meal with someone. Um, it, it was one thing in their society to shop at the same market with a sinful person because you can't avoid that. I mean, you can't help that. There's, there's tons of people there and you have to buy food and stuff. But it was completely different to go to their house for a meal. Um, it, to me, this kind of reminded me, and I wasn't here for the sermon when Gunnar preached on this, but in Matthew chapter 8, verses 11 and 12, um, these verses kind of came to my mind and, and they were brought to my mind by one of the commentaries. And it says this in Matthew eight eleven through 12. It says, many will come from the east and the west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. And in that place will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, what in the world? I, I wasn't here for Gunner's def, uh, explanation of that verse. But I will say that what I think is being pictured, even in the way that Christ lived his life on earth here, is he's picturing for all of those who are willing to look and to listen this same idea. He's saying here that ultimately 
the people who think they're Jewish by blood and they have all the religious aspects to, to make them holy before God because they were born with the right bloodline of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were born um, um, having everything in place so they could have this great relationship with God. And they think they're in this relationship with him that will put them into a, the kingdom of heaven eating a meal with God at the final marriage supper of the Lamb. He says, ultimately, the sons of the kingdom will be cast into outer darkness, and in that place will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Because instead of those people being allowed at the table, all these Gentiles, it says many will come from the east and the west. The people who are outside the quote-unquote family of God, who aren't perfect, who aren't righteous, who don't have the right pedigree, and God is accepting them at his table. And Jesus exemplified during his life this aspect of God's love for us. God's love was not limited by their genetics. God's love was not limited by their, by their status in life. God's love was not limited by their disabilities. Because God's love was willing to accept them if they recognized their sin and their inability to do anything about it. And they came to him and found forgiveness. We can exhibit that same attitude today. Unfortunately, when I started thinking about how this applies, um, you know, we've already said there's no one outside of God's mercy. There's no one outside of God's grace. But many times, even in our churches, we can exhibit the same attitude as the Pharisees. And we can come into our church and we can say all the right things that God loves people and God loves everyone and he wants us to accept everyone. But then if but then we we have we can sometimes exhibit the same attitudes that cause us to think that some people are unreachable. We can look at those at people and we can and we can and it will lead us to shun relationships with, quote unquote, those kind of people. And whether those kind of people Maybe they're gay, maybe they have AIDS, maybe they're homeless, maybe they're illegal, maybe they're Democrats. There's a lot of categories that we can put people in and we can separate ourselves from those people because they're not one of us. And unfortunately, in our Christian walk, we can even use the scriptures, I think, improperly to actually justify that behavior. In Ephesians chapter 5, 5 through 7, we find this. It says in Ephesians 5, 5 through 7, For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Now, it's very clear here, and, and it's not out of context to say that God is telling us, do not join in other people's sin. Because if you're a child of God, your life is supposed to be different from the sin that is going on in the world. But notice what he does not say he says, he doesn't say stay away from them and have nothing to do with them. He says, don't be partakers of their sin. There is a huge difference to say, well, I'm going to go down and hang out with my buddies and get drunk with them at the bar 
and to say, you know what, I've got some friends that don't do things that are very pleasing to the Lord, but you know what, they still need Christ, and I still love them, and I still care about them, so I'm going to have a party at my house, and I'm going to invite them to join me in, in a place where I know I can control the environment, and, um, and, and we're just going to be friends together so I can hopefully develop a relationship that will ultimately show them the love of Christ. And too many times we've taken what God says about being separate from sin and we've separated ourselves so far from the world and so far from sinners that we could never ever show someone the love of Christ because we barely know them. We're not willing to open up our lives and open up our hearts and get to know them in the way that Jesus Christ did here where he was willing to go to a party and have the religious leaders of his day look at him and say, you're nothing but a friend of sinners. And Jesus said, you're right, I am. Because I love them. Because I care about them. Because I want them to know who Jesus Christ is. So, as we go through our Christian life, we need to watch our attitudes. That we don't exhibit those same types of attitudes that the Pharisees did. That we understand that God's love is big enough to reach that person that, yes, is doing things that we find very offensive. That is saying things that we find very offensive. That does things that we find very offensive because they don't know Jesus Christ. But God's love is big enough to reach even that person with the love and the grace and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Being a saved sinner does not make us any better than other sinners who need to see Christ's forgiveness through us. But this isn't where it ends. Jesus has an answer for these people. Now think about this. The Pharisees are saying this, most likely outside of the house, to a disciple. There's a party going on. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I kind of feel like this is a kind of loud party. My, my neighbors last night decided to have a party till like after midnight. Um, I don't know why. But it was very loud. Um, ultimately, they finally calmed down. Um, but, you know, parties are not known for being quiet. So there's probably a lot of noise going on, people having fun, people laughing and joking. Jesus is right inside the house with them. And this Pharisee makes this sarcastic remark to one of the disciples who's probably kind of standing outside the door. or You know, the party's kind of trickled outside. And then it says in verse 12, but when Jesus heard this. Now, how did Jesus hear this? Did his disciples kind of come up and say, hey, Jesus, there's some people out here who are always out here, who are always picking on you. And they heard, they, they said this. I don't think so. It's interesting to me that there's many times in scripture where the Pharisees kind of say something in the background. They kind of mention something over on the side, and it's like, and that's when the God part, that's when the God side of Jesus's nature comes into play. And Jesus knows exactly what they just said. He's not hiding it. He's not trying to play dumb. Jesus knows exactly what's going on. And it says, when Jesus heard this, he said, "It's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners." Now, what was Jesus saying here? Was he saying that the Pharisees were righteous? He says those that are healthy do not require a physician. And, and was he calling them righteous and without sin by calling them healthy? I don't think so. He was, in, he was pointing out what was in their hearts and in their minds. Um, in Matthew twenty three twenty seven, it's very clear that Jesus doesn't think that the Pharisees are truly righteous. He says in Matthew twenty three twenty seven, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, 
which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. You don't say that to a person if you think they're righteous and right with God, okay? I'm just going to, I mean, you just wouldn't say that. If I, if I, if I think someone's a Christian and on their way to heaven and is in a right relationship with God, I'm not going to look at them and say, you're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So Jesus is not saying that they're actually clean, but he's acknowledging the way they feel about themselves. Um, and, and what they didn't understand, especially, was that any healer has to get his hands dirty. Now, this is just another illustration. He uses the illustration here of a doctor. Think about a doctor. Now, me personally, I, I don't really like seeing the insides of things, okay? I used to, I, I, I mean, I don't hunt anymore, um, but I used to hunt. But the first time I had to gut a deer, I'm not going to be all grotesque and go into the illustration like Gunner read a couple of weeks ago that was kind of gross on something. But um, I, let me just say, there's not much fun um, about gutting any animal to me at all, ever. There's, the meat's not that good. It's not worth it. Um, but my, my little brother is like a doctor. And I don't know if you've ever been a, like a doctor. He is a doctor. And uh, I, don't know if you've ever, I don't know if you've ever been around a lot of doctors. And in the Navy, as a chaplain, I spend a lot of time around doctors because we just get lumped together when we're at the Marine Corps because that's the only Navy personnel serving with them is, is doctors, corpsmen, and chaplains. So I've been around a lot of doctors. And when they get together, they have a really morbid sense of humor. They also do things like pull out their cell phones and are like, hey, you know what I saw today? Do you know what I did? Look at this surgery that I just did. Look at what I, and I'm looking at it like, that is really disgusting. Why would you ever want to put your hands in that body? That is gross. I mean, and they're showing like, you know, open wounds and things and somebody got a nail stuck. And so they, oh, they're taking a picture of it because it's really cool. Um, no, that's totally disgusting to me. But in order to heal that person, a doctor has to be willing to do things that people like me are not going to ever be willing to do. They have to be willing to put their hands in places where I don't ever want my hands to go. They have to be willing to deal with blood and with things that can make them sick if they're not careful in how they handle it. They have to be willing to do things that the rest of us would look at and say, yeah, that's gross. Because the ultimate fact is because they're willing to do that, People's lives are saved. And Jesus is saying that if you're going to ever see people healed, that sometimes you have to get your hands dirty. And the religious leaders didn't understand that at all. To them, it was about them looking perfect and being, in their minds anyway, perfect. And to get their hands dirty and stained with any of the world would have brought them down and made them less than perfect. And Jesus says, for the person who truly knows me and wants to see other people come to me, it's going to take sometimes getting yourself stained, not falling into the sin, not joining in the sin, but being around it because you care about the people that are in it and trapped in it. He goes on here and he says, but go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not call the righteous, but sinners. Here he's quoting from Hosea 6.6. I think it's important that he uses this quote. In, in Mark and in, in, remember the point here. Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience to convince Jews that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. 
And so he constantly refers back to the Old Testament and pulls quotations out of the Old Testament in order to prove that Jesus is fulfillment of prophecy in order to kind of rely on that basis so he can speak to a Jewish audience and the message will be accepted. Um, in Mark and Luke, it, it is not a direct quotation. He, he, he says something, but it's, it's, he says it in a different way, or at least he's quoted as saying it is a different way, um, and, it, and it, it does not seem any way like it's a direct quotation. But here in, Hose, in, in this passage, it's a direct quotation from Hosea 6.6. Now, I want to read it first from Hosea 6 itself. Hosea 6, 4 through 6, I'm going to back up, says this. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? For your loyalty is like a morning cloud and like the dew which goes away early. Therefore, I have hewn them in pieces by the prophets. I've slain them by the words of my mouth. And the judgments on you are like the light that goes forth. For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Now, you'll notice there's a little bit difference in the quote here. And, and basically, it revolves around one word. There's a very important word in the Old Testament called hesed. And, and that word is, there's not, an, there's not a great way to translate it in English. Um, it, it, it's translated in the New, New, New American Standard Bible as loyalty. Um, in the King James, it's translated as loving kindness. Um, in other newer translations, it's translated in various ways. But it carries this idea of a loyal devotion love for another person. And it's always spoken of in the Old Testament as the type of love that God shows to his people. It's also shown as the type, it's shown as the type of covenant love that God shows to his people and that he asks in return, what he requires in return. That's why he says here, for your loyalty, Hesed, is like a morning cloud. He's talking to the people of, of Israel and he's saying, you know, I... You you say you love me, but instead it's like this morning cloud. It comes up in the morning and it's gone. He, you you It's like the dew that goes away early. The dew comes in the morning. We know about that here. You walk outside, it's nice and wet, especially you know, on a day like today. It's still wet now, but, um, but then it's going to be gone by noon. It's going to be 90 degrees. I don't know about for sure today, but it could be. Um, and so he's saying that's the way your loyalty is. That's the way your hesed is. And he says, he goes down and he ends it then by saying, but I delight in loyalty in this hesed rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And so he says, I would rather have you actually be loyal to me, actually love me, actually serve me in the, in, and show that love than to do all these sacrifices and be great at following your sacrificial system. Well, how does that apply here in the New Testament, and why does he bring this up? I think he brings it up because when he says there, I desire compassion and not sacrifice, he's quoting from the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament that was in common use then by, by average, average people because they could all read Greek. And so um, they, they use the Greek New Testament, the Septuagint, and, and in there they translate that word hesed as compassion. And the reason they did that was because, like I said, even in other languages like Greek, there's not an amazing great way to translate that word. But what it shows is, is it, the word carries the, the connotation of someone who is in need and cannot help themselves. 
And so the word is, is, is most always used of God's love, Christ's love for us. And so when Christ is talking and he says there that go and learn what this means to show com- that I desire compassion and not sacrifice, it, it's got that same idea from the Old Testament that I would rather see you live out your faith in serving me instead of following a bunch of religious rules and regulations. Instead of looking like the perfect Christian, in their case, the perfect Jew. I would rather see you actually follow me. And that's why going back to how did Jesus call Matthew? He didn't say to Matthew, Matthew, come follow all my rules. He didn't say to Matthew, come and, and, and look a certain way and say the right things and clean yourself up and stop doing sin. He simply came to Matthew and he said, follow me. That was Christ's call. And that was a really different call than the one that the religious leaders were putting out to people. The religious leaders would say, here's what God desires. 613 laws, and if you follow these and you keep yourself unstained from all of these people because they're all sinful and evil, then you'll be in a right relationship with God. And Jesus came along and said, it's not about any of that. It's about following me. It's about being a disciple of Jesus Christ. And that disciple, being a disciple of Jesus Christ, means that according to Matthew 28, 19, and 20, the very last words that we're going to, that two years from now, when we finally get through Matthew, Gunnar will be preaching on, um, that we are called to make other disciples. And that means that we have to be willing to get our hands dirty. We have to be willing to risk other people not understanding why we would go hang out with certain other people in order to win them to Jesus Christ. And so when Jesus quotes this in, the, in this passage, he's quoting from the Septuagint. The word compassion is, 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 is the Greek word that translates because it conveys the mercy necessary for God to show his unveiling love to his people who are constantly failing him. It demonstrates that God's desire is faithful, loving commitment to following him rather than simply going through the motions of religion. It was that compassion and that forgiveness that Matthew responded to. And that's the same compassion that all of us respond to when we meet Christ. You didn't come to Christ because you you saw a bunch of rules and said, I love to follow rules and I want to follow all of these rules. If we truly know Christ... We first looked at ourselves and realized that we were hopelessly a sinner. That all of us, like Matthew, we may not have been a tax collector. We may not have been dregs of society looked down on by all of our society around us. But we all looked at ourselves and we knew that we had cheated. We had lied. We had stolen things. We've done things wrong because the Bible says that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the only way that we could fix that wasn't by trying to keep a bunch of rules and be good enough to enter heaven. It was because we looked at a cross and we saw a compassionate God who loved us enough to send his son to die on the cross and be our sacrifice. And when we looked at the cross and we realized that we should be up there, it was our sin that sent him there and we accepted by faith his forgiveness through what Jesus Christ did on the cross. I think that um, 
the fact that there's two words that are absent from this from this passage that are there in Luke. In the book of Luke, this passage ends, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. And if you read the King James, unfortunately it got transitioned into there because at some point in the past, rabbi, uh, not rabbis, uh, scholars um, copying it and copying it, put it, added it back into the book of Matthew and Mark, even though it's not there. And there's, a, I think, and it, it might not be a huge issue, but I think it's a point to be made that the, the reason it's not there is because to a Jewish audience, you have to remember Luke is writing to a Gentile audience, not a Jewish audience. Their, their need was not to be less religious. Their need was to know God and recognize they were sinners. But to a Jewish audience, they were confronted every single day by the religious leaders that they looked up to that they were sinners. They were confronted every day with the fact that they failed miserably to keep the law because they were told that constantly, that you can't be good enough. You're not as good as us. We do this better. We, we do this. We're not stained by the world. And so Jesus, in, 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 in his call to them, is not saying, I've come to call you to more religious actions. He's saying, I'm calling you to follow me. He's saying, I'm calling you to call. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. That doesn't mean he doesn't want them to repent. We come to Christ because we recognize our sin and we repent of our sin and we recognize there's nothing we can do to earn that salvation. But ultimately, God offers us all the love and forgiveness in the world. And there's nothing we have to do to earn it because there's nothing we can do to earn it. And his call is simply the same as it was to Matthew, follow me. Ultimately, Christ is about saving sinners by forgiving sins. That means that in using us to be salt and light in the world, we have to actually love sinners as he did. We have to accept them where they are as Christ did. You cannot expect a sinner to act like a saint. You cannot expect someone who doesn't know Jesus Christ to act the way you want them to because their moral actions are governed by something different than what ours are. We do that by having the compassion on them as Christ did, that they are in a state of sin and that Christ is the only answer and the only fix in their life. My prayer is that we would have those same eyes, that same desire to love others as Jesus Christ did. And that ultimately we would see that there is no one, no one that you work with, that you're friends with, that's in your family, that is beyond the scope of God's love and God's mercy. And this morning after I pray, we're going to have communion. And one of the, the way that Christ has called us to remember him is not with any other religious act other than the simple act of drinking and eating. Drinking a cup that reminds us that it's only through his blood and not our works that we can have a relationship with God and go to heaven. Eating a cracker that represents the fact that his body was broken for us. That his, his death on the cross was in our place. And that ultimately, every one of us is in need of a Savior.
If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, all he says is follow me. Except by faith that when Jesus Christ died on that cross, he died for you. And he's the only answer to your sin and your only way to a relationship with God the Father. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, as we come before you today, we are humbled by the fact that you loved us. Lord, we have no room, no room to look down on anyone else because we are all sinners in need of a Savior. Father, as we partake in communion this morning, we ask that you would remind us again that your death paid the price for every one of our sins, that your forgiveness is so great that as we, we remembered last week, it, it's totally removed from your memory. Father, help us to love you and to serve you and to love others with the love you showed us. In Christ's name.